Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. I'm Mark. Uh, I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life. Um, usually, Pastor Chris or Pastor Brad would be up here, uh, but today, Pastor Chris, our lead pastor, uh, Pastor Brad, our pastor of uh, worship and media arts, I point here because this is usually where he is, um, and uh, Pastor Alex, uh, who we call a right here, our youth pastor, are all in Cuba. Um, so we got confirmation. All three of them landed safe, made it through baggage claim. All the things that went with them are there and safe, and so that is an awesome thing and reason to celebrate. We're so happy. Cuba season here at New Life really is a season. It's always one of those kind of stressful seasons because either Pastor Chris or Pastor Chris and others are getting ready to leave and we're collecting things and we're always wondering how many churches is New Life going to buy this year? Will we buy all of them? Will we buy some of them? Will we buy none of them? We're never sure. And I'd love to tell you how many churches we bought here at New Life and how much as a generous family you gave. But I do believe that if I do that, I will get in trouble with my senior pastor, Chris, who loves to tell people those things. And so I'm going to make you wait until he returns and he can tell you what happened with the churches in Cuba over the past couple of weeks. I'm also always just incredibly impressed by this church's generosity, by your generosity um, on behalf of the Cuban people. I'll tell you this, it's people that you've never probably met that you don't know. You don't know the environment, you just hear stories and see pictures from us as a staff or from Pastor Chris. But the way that you have been generous to the people of Cuba has brought the kingdom of God there in a nation where the Holy Spirit is doing amazing things right now. So thank you so much for the way that you've participated in that over the past couple of weeks, the way that you've blessed our three pastors, Alex, Chris, and Brad, as they've gone to Cuba and been able to see the, the fruit of your generosity um, with the pastors who are there. Today we're starting an all new series. So we just ended a 31 day prayer emphasis in the month of January, um, but we are beginning a new series this week called Love and Respect. And if you didn't guess it from the video and also just the title, Love and Respect, if you've been in like church lingo long enough, you probably understand that we're gonna be talking about marriage. And so over the next four weeks here at New Life, we're gonna be spending some time talking about what it means to be married and what our roles are in marriage. And now we have four questions that we're going to address. And if you're the person who likes to fill out the outline, which I make the outline, I'm not even the person who likes to fill out the outline. So don't feel guilty if you don't like filling it out. I don't blame you. Um, to start off, I'm going to bring us up to our very first point. And it has to do with three questions that we're, or four questions that we're going to be answering over the next couple of weeks. The first question that we're going to be answering is this, and it's what I'm going to be looking at today. What was God's design and what was his purpose for marriage? What was God's design, and what was his purpose for marriage? The next question that we're going to be answering is what is the role of a man and a woman in marriage? The week after that, we're going to be addressing how does a man truly love his wife? And the final question is how does a wife truly respect her husband? Now, you may be asking yourself a question, and that is why. Why are we spending four weeks on the subject of marriage? After all, not everybody here is married. Not everybody here is old enough to be married. Not everybody here wants to be married. Many of you here may have been married at one time, but you're not currently, either because of the loss of either your husband or wife or because of a divorce. 
And so why would we spend four weeks of our time talking about marriage? Now, there's really two reasons why we're going to be spending the next four weeks addressing marriage in our culture. The reason, one, is because we just realize that most people, the majority of people, are called to be married. Now, that being said, there are some people, and Paul highlights that in his works and his letters to the churches, there are some people who aren't called to be married. Paul was never married. Of course, Jesus was never married. So there are some people who are not called to be married, but they're called just to do the work of the ministry, and we understand that. But for the vast majority of people, we believe that most people are called to a marriage relationship. And so we think it's important that we address it and we understand how it works and how it was designed and what its purpose is. Also, if you're not intending to get married or you're too young to get married, then it's good to know a little bit about marriage relationships because believe it or not, if you live in this world, you're going to encounter them from time to time because there's a lot of people out there who are married. The other reason why we want to spend four weeks with this is there's a lot of confusion about it. In our culture today, there's a good bit of confusion, not just about what marriage is and what it should be, but about gender roles and what they are and what they should be. On top of that, there's a lot of confusion about what the church believes and what the Bible actually says. And so here at New Life, we want to spend some time talking about marriage because we know there's a lot of questions just about what does the Bible actually have to say about marriage and gender roles? What does the Bible actually have to say about relationships? And then what do we believe as a church here at New Life? What do we believe about those very same things? So to start off with that, we're going to address the first portion of that question. What was God's design for marriage? And then later we're going to address what was God's purpose for marriage? So God's design for marriage, in order to start there, we do need to start by looking in the book of Genesis. Now before I look to the book of Genesis, the thing that I want to do first is I want to go to our take-home point. Now, our take-home point is the one point that we seek to make here every week. It's the one point that my message is going to hinge upon. It's the one point that we're hoping you will go and take with you and live out and remember in the coming week. Our take-home point is this. Marriage is more than a human relationship. It is a representation of Jesus' relationship with us. Marriage is more than a relationship. It is a representation of Jesus' relationship with us. Now to get started, I want to look at two passages from the beginning of the book of Genesis, and then we are going to look at a passage a little bit later from the book of Mark as we begin to address three step things, three principles that we believe here at New Life make up the design for marriage that God wrote into creation. So we'll start here in Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 to 31. It says this, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that was what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now here we see the last day of God's creation before the seventh day when he rested. And we see him creating human beings. That is very good. Then we pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, just shortly after this, some more account of the creation story. It said, Then the Lord 
God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord took out of the man, out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So one of the questions now that you may be asking yourself is a really simple one. And that question is this, why? Why are we starting in the book of Genesis? After all, there's a lot of passages about marriage and there's a lot of people who were married. So why is it that we're starting all the way back in the book of Genesis? Now there's really three reasons to start in the book of Genesis from at least our perspective here at New Life when it comes to marriage. The first one is really simple, and I wish I had brought my Bible up on stage, but if you ever look at your Bible, divide it between Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the rest of the Bible, and then pull up the page that has Genesis chapter 3 on it. If you do that, the first couple pages in my Bible, the first two pages, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, are where the earth is perfect and nothing is wrong. Then page 3 in my Bible is where it's broken. Everything becomes broken and corrupted by sin. And the whole rest of the Bible is the story of how God has interacted with his creation to redeem it. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first two pages of the Bible, and you wonder how much God loves us? Take that as an example. We broke everything on page three. God took the rest of the pages to tell a love story to us and to redeem his creation, ultimately through his son, Jesus. But on page three, this is broken. So when we're looking to understand marriages that are meant to last a lifetime, when we're looking to understand relationships that are God-honoring, there's no place that's not completely corrupted by sin other than the first couple pages of the Bible. Because on page three, sin, enter, sin enters the picture as Eve eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tempted by the serpent, that is Satan. And from there, she finds shame at her nakedness in front of her husband. And God comes walking to them in the garden of the cool of the day. So we see when we're looking for an understanding of what positive and perfect relationships are, there's really not many places to go in the Bible outside of looking at the life of Jesus and the way he encountered sinful people and then looking at Adam and Eve and the way they lived perfectly in a perfect world until it became corrupted when sin and Satan entered the scene. So that's the first reason why we would go to Genesis and look there. The second reason is very simple, and I think it's on your outline as well. Oftentimes, we believe that we're perfectly okay. We're perfectly okay on our own. You see, when I read this passage, I oftentimes look at this, and I'm like, well, I don't understand why Adam needed Eve. Do you ever feel like that? 
Like God said all of his creation was very good, and then he said there was something that wasn't good, and that was that man should not be alone. And by extension, I think it also wouldn't have been good for the woman to be alone. Now for me, I sit there and I read that, and I think, well, if I was perfect, and I lived in a perfect garden, and I got to strut my stuff all day and hang out with tigers that evidently ate foliage, according to the Bible, um, and, uh, and God walked with me in the cool of the day, and everything was perfect, and there was no sin, why would I need someone else? I don't understand. I mean, after all, aren't other people most of your problems too? I mean, really, isn't that, don't we feel that way sometimes, that if other people weren't around, my life would be better? I mean, sometimes I feel that way. After all, if everyone got off the road and got out of my way, I would never be late. I would always get there on time. As it turns out, everyone who drives from Saxonburg to Butler, they don't know the speed limit on the road that I drive. I don't know it either because I sometimes drive above it. But I get frustrated with other people in my life, right? Well, Jesus and God knew something. They knew something that we didn't. And so for that reason, God set the framework for marriage relationships into the foundation of creation. He created Eve and he set the very framework for marriage relationships into the foundation of creation. And then from there, God placed the foundation for community in his creation as well. God placed the foundation for community inside his creation. So there was a couple of things that were inherent to us as human beings. One of those things became the marriage relationship. The other one is a desperate need for community, other people in our lives. We're hurt by being isolated. So that's the second reason we go to Genesis, because we believe that God set the framework for community and for marriage inside of Genesis chapters one and two. Now, the third reason we go there is a cultural reason. Because at one point or another, you're probably going to run into this conversation. And it will be, as a Christian, what do you believe about marriage? And if you haven't run into it yet, you probably will. And if you haven't yet, maybe you should hang out with teenagers. Because at one point or another, they'll probably ask you. Because they're not as afraid to be wrong or ask questions. And so as you go and someone asks you that, the, oftentimes the common response of a Christian is, I believe in biblical marriage. I believe in what the Bible preaches about marriage. And we think, oh, that will kind of be closed, done, sealed, delivered. I don't have to talk about it anymore. But the, oftentimes the question that comes after that is a completely logical and actually a very good question, and is what biblical marriage? Because as a Christian, if you're saying you believe in biblical marriage, what biblical marriage is it? Well, perhaps you mean the marriage of Abraham to his wife Sarah. Where Sarah couldn't have children, but she had this young servant girl, and she let her husband sleep with the young servant girl so that she could get children fathered through her servant. And then when Sarah could have kids, she abused and mistreated the servant girl and her son until they were driven away and almost died in the desert. Is that the marriage that you're talking about? Well, maybe you're thinking about Jacob. You know, he had 12 sons, after all, to two different women. He was married to both. They were both sisters. After marrying one, he worked seven years because he didn't really like that one, so he got her younger sister as well. And then they competed so much for his affection because the younger one couldn't have children that they also both gave a servant girl to their husband to sleep with and father kids. Maybe that's the marriage that you're talking about. Oh, perhaps it's Solomon, right? Maybe that's the biblical marriage you're talking about. After all, Solomon only had 700 wives and 300 concubines, side girls that he kept around that he never married, but we're just hanging out. Maybe that's what you're talking about. 
Oh, you're not talking about the Old Testament at all. I understand. So you're looking at the New Testament. So maybe you're talking about the Jews who were perfectly allowed because women were second-class citizens at that time, that the, the, the Jews were allowed to beat, abuse, send away, and even have their wives stoned if they didn't please them. Maybe that's the biblical marriage that you're referring to. You see, when we say we just believe in biblical marriage and we expect that to close the conversation, it's muddy. And for a lot of people, rightfully so, it's very confusing. So here at New Life, when we get that question, especially as a staff, we commonly say here at New Life, we believe in marriage as it is depicted in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we believe in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it depicts two very clear principles. They're also on your outline, but I'm jumping down probably just a little bit. And it's this. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And marriage is between only two people. The first two principles for God's design for marriage. And he set those in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And marriage is between only two people. Now, in our culture, we're pretty okay with marriage being only two people. Like, we, it's, it's generally kind of like a faux pas to be married to, like, six women. And most guys couldn't possibly understand that worldview. Because I'm married to one. The common joke is it's more than, it's definitely, I can't handle that much. So, I understand. But... Oftentimes when we begin to talk this way and we set down the design that God has for marriage, especially as he has pointed it out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we can begin, people begin to believe that we're against people. And I'm here to tell you today, we are not against those who think differently or believe differently than we do. In fact, Jesus was for everybody, so much so that when he was on the earth, he was considered a drunkard and a glutton. Not that he was getting drunk or was eating too much, but he spent so much time with the people who did that he was associated with them. Because Jesus was for everyone. And so here at New Life, we wholeheartedly believe that we are also for everyone. But we also know that the truth sets us free. The last passage I want to read to you to point out the third piece in the design that God has made for the marriage relationship comes to us from the book of Mark. And it's actually from Mark chapter 10. It's verses 1 through 12. And it says this, Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question, as he usually did. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded. He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made the male and female from the beginning of creation. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Jesus starts spitting Old Testament scripture here. If you notice, it has a lot to do with that book of Genesis we just read. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in his house, they brought up the subject again. It was confusing for them. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces, divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Now, before we get to the last point in God's design for marriage, I want to point something out. If you haven't noticed yet, there's a lot of truth being shared. There's a lot of truth being shared during this section of the sermon. Now, 
Some of that truth is abrasive and some of it hard. Especially when Jesus talks about divorce. But if you noticed everything that Jesus talked about, not just divorce and marriage, a lot of things, very hard for people to understand and take. And there's a, a common, I think it's a lie going around that says that most people who come to church aren't interested in the truth. They're interested in what will make them happy. That people who come to church are not really interested in being set free with the truth. They're only interested in what's going to make them happy. I don't think that's true of new life. And so over this week and next, we're sharing a lot of the very basics, both of marriage and gender equality and setting some framework in place. And then over the last two weeks of this series, I just want to encourage you, we're going to have a lot of fun stories about being married when we talk about males and females in the context of marriage, each individually. And although the first two weeks will be a lot of setting the framework for this series, the last two weeks are going to be a lot of immediately applicable things that we can take and put into our lives to better and live out a better marriage. So I just want to encourage you in that way. But the last point that I want to point out, that this is the last piece I believe of God's design for marriage, is marriage was intended to be a permanent earthly union. A permanent earthly union. Now I say earthly for a reason, because it's not a permanent union, and we're going to see that in a minute when we look at the purpose for marriage. But the three points again were this. Marriage is between a man and a woman, Marriage is between only two people, and marriage was intended to be a permanent earthly union. Now, I asked a question at the very beginning. I said this is what we were going to address, and that was what was God's design and purpose for marriage? I think at this point, we've outlined a pretty good framework through three principles that are pretty easy to understand about what God's, de what God's design for marriage is. But I have not at all addressed what God's purpose for marriage is. Now, as we look at the book of Genesis, we did see a couple of purposes. One of those was it was not good for us to be alone, so God wanted to set down the framework of community in our culture, in our lives, throughout all of creation. So community was one aspect of that because it wasn't good for us to be alone. Another aspect of that was God commanded Adam and Eve to go and be fruitful and multiply, and we all know what that means, and subdue the earth and roll over it. So reproduction, continuing the human race and his creation was another purpose for being married. But there's another purpose that's outlined in the New Testament works through the words of Jesus and the words of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at three brief passages this morning that I think outline this, am this amazing, it's insanely cool piece of what the marriage relationship brings to us. And it lets us know what we lose when we lose sight of God's design for marriage. The first passage comes from Matthew 22, verses 29 to 30, and it says this, Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, talking to uh, the Pharisees, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. So when we rise and we're in heaven, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So my wife here is an earthly wife. There's some purpose for it here. I'm not making an eternal bond with my wife, Jen, here on this earth. When I go to heaven, according to this, I won't be married to her, nor will I need marriage, nor will people be given in marriage. So therefore, there must be some sort of purpose, something that I can understand about who God is through marriage here on earth. Then Paul adds this from 2 Corinthians, verses, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 4. For I, that is Paul, am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. 
I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one that you believed. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. You see, Jesus makes it very clear and Paul makes it clear as well. And then there's this outcry throughout all of Scripture, and we see it at the very end of Scripture, which we're going to read today towards the end of the book of Revelation, that Jesus' love for his church is mirrored in our love for one another in the marriage relationship. That God has given us marriage, this earthly union, this permanently, permanent earthly union between one man and one woman so that we may get an opportunity to understand how Jesus loves the church. Because the church, that's us, the body of believers who find Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, are described as his bride, his wife, beautifully dressed, without blemish, And so when we are in a marriage relationship and we begin to explore what that means with somebody and it's this permanent earthly union, we get a chance and a glimpse into the way that Jesus loves us. And when I say us, I don't mean you and me. He does love you and me. I mean the way he loves the only thing that was ever put on the earth to combat sin and to redeem the people. And that was Jesus' church the big church. And Jesus loves his church so, so much. It's his plan A, and he doesn't make plan Bs. And because he loves his church so much, God wrote marriage into the fabric of creation so that as we get married and as we love one another and as we forgive one another and as we respect one another, we will also understand and experience the way that Jesus loves us and the way that we ought to submit to him as a church. You see, I understand the way God loves me partially through the way that my wife loves me. And I never understood that until I was married. But the way my wife forgives me for being a total idiot, the way my wife loves me, despite the fact that sometimes I don't deserve love. You ever do something really stupid if you're married? I'm sure you have. I'm sure that you have. I did something really stupid like three days into being married. I made some sort of like sly remark about the groceries my wife brought home. We were like three days into marriage and she was crying in the kitchen. I had no idea. I had no idea what I had done wrong. Here's another one. I left last night to come here and preach about marriage, and my wife asked me if I could take a glass container to church that belonged here, and I said, no, I can't be troubled with that. I was like, and then I got here, and I was like, oh. (laughs) I have to talk about marriage? And I couldn't bring like a, a nine by 13 glass pan thing to the church for her? Like, I'm walking out the door, and she's like, will you please take this to the church? And I'm like, nah, 
Can't be bothered with that. Got too much on my mind. Can't, can't think about cookware. <laughs> like, how ridiculous. How ridiculous. Right? But it's through the forgiveness of my wife and the love of my wife that I understand Jesus' love for me. We can't experience unconditional love this side of eternity except through our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't actually exist. But the closest thing that we can get to is in the context of a marriage relationship. Guys, this is why marriage relationships are so insanely important. And this is why understanding God's design for marriage is so insanely important. Because when we miss it, when we lose it, when we don't strive for healthy marriages, it does more than tear down the family unit in our culture. It does more than tear, up out, tear down stable households. It does more than give people reason to believe that marriage is useless and there's no point in it. It makes us lose sight of the way that Jesus loved the church. We've been given an amazing and amazing tool to understand the way that God loves us. And when we lose sight of the design and purpose for marriage, we lose sight of our greatest opportunity to understand God's love. This is why the marriage relationship is so purposeful and so important. It helps us understand an eternal love, an eternal principle, one that should never be forgotten. Now, I'm going to read from the book of Revelations as we get ready to close today. And I know for many of you in this room, I just want to make this disclaimer. This is not going to be an easy series. And today wasn't easy for you. Marriage is hard. Maybe you feel like your marriage is a wreck and it's not going to continue today. Maybe you feel like, I don't know that I could ever get married again because my previous marriage was such a wreck. Maybe you've lost a husband or wife to death. I don't know what situation you're in today. And be thankful that I don't, because I've served in churches where everybody knows everybody's business. It's not as good of a thing as you think. I don't know where you're coming from today, so I know some of this can be really hard to hear. But I want to read to you from the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation has never been my favorite book in the Bible. My favorite book is Proverbs, which might tell you why Revelation is one of my least favorite books, actually. It's one of the hardest to understand. But there's this beautiful image at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And if you feel completely uncomfortable with this, don't do it. But if you do feel comfortable, close your eyes and just hear these words. And just imagine them. Imagine them, because they're incredible. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's us, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God is now among his people and will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. Amen. One day soon, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, will return. And shortly after that day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And us, the bride of the Son of God, will come down, dressed beautifully. And on that day, we will live in the holy city. And there'll be a river that flows from it. 
and we'll be able to drink from that river. And there'll be no more light, and there'll be no more need for the sun. Because on that day, God will be our light and our warmth. And there will be no more death or tears or crying. Jesus wants us to be able to understand a bit of that. This love that he has for us, this purpose, this plan. And the greatest tool that he has given to us, this side of eternity, to understand it and to catch a glimpse of it, is marriage. And so as we look at the commitment this week, and as we look through the next three weeks at gender roles and how we can live as a better husband or a better wife, I hope and I pray that we can take these things to heart so that we can build better marriages and strive for better marriages so that we can understand more fully how God loves us. The commitment this week is this. I will love and respect my husband slash wife this week so that we can see how Jesus loves the church. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be diving more deeply into just that. So I hope that you'll be back, and I hope that you'll join us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for today, and I, I thank you for another day to be able to serve you. I pray, Father, that as we are striving to become more loving and more respectful and more encouraging in our marriages this week, that you would be there alongside of us and that we would realize that we get an opportunity to catch a glimpse of the way you love us, your church. I pray these things in your name. Amen.